It's a blessing seeing you all out here. <clears throat> uh, just, to, just to let you know, obviously our intent on these Jesus nights is that there's a lot of different ways to get Jesus to a lost world. And I would never want to criticize anybody who's doing the work. I mean, for the guy that's standing on the store at this sort of street corner with a sign, hey, good on him for being that bold. That's my attitude. I mean, sometimes they could be a bit argumentative, as we all could be. And I would prefer that not to be the case. But certainly, I'm just thankful the gospel is going forth, as Paul would say. Either way, the gospel is, if the gospel is being preached, I'm thankful for that. And that I will rejoice. But in that, the Bible does speak about the wrath of God being revealed against the wickedness and godlessness of men who suppress the truth by their own ungodliness. And there isn't, it isn't a lack of truth, it's what you're doing with it, suppressing it, pushing it away. John would tell us in John 3 that the verdict was that light had come into the world and there are those who didn't love the light, nor would step in it, because if they did, it would be clearly seen that their deeds are evil. And some people would rather stay in obscurity because you look a lot better there when you're trying to hide your flaws. But I've learned that there can be those who just want to criticize others to tell them how stupid they are for walking around with their eyes closed. But I'd say I'd like to give them a good reason to open their eyes. And so the idea of a night like Jesus night, first of all, we didn't want to call it worship night because people worship all kinds of things. We wanted to make sure that you understood what we were and who we were worshiping, and that's Jesus Christ. But in that, we are going to take back words that people are fearful of now, like preach and such. It's like, I'm not going to preach at you. You should as long as you're preaching the truth. And um, we, the night's a night of abject and ridiculous celebration, thanking the Lord, but then also inviting people to come to know Jesus. So for those who think that their only experience with Christianity is something argumentative and whatever, you know, most of the time they didn't have the experience, but they heard a story from the Internet, and that's good enough. Prove them wrong tonight. Invite them. Nonetheless, uh, if you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Let's get one to you. We are in the book of Deuteronomy. As we go straight through Scripture, we are in the fifth book of the Bible. We're in chapter 12 today. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Chapter 12. Would you read along with me, please? These are the statutes and judgments which the Lord, which I'm sorry, which you shall be careful to observe in the land in which the Lord, your God of your fathers, is giving you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations which you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains, on the high hills, and under every green tree. You shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars, and burn their wooden images with fire. You shall cut down their carved images of their gods and destroy their names from that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God with such things. But you shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses out of all of the tribes to put his name for his dwelling place. And there you shall go. 
There you shall take your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, your heave offerings of your hand, your vowed offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God. And you shall rejoice in all to which you have put your hand, you and your households, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. You shall not at all do as we are doing here today. Every man doing whatever is right in his own eyes. For as yet you have not come to the rest and the inheritance which the Lord your God is giving you. But when you cross over the Jordan and dwell in the land in which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and he gives you rest from all your enemies round about, so that you dwell in safety, then there will be a place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. There you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the heave offerings of your hand, and all your choice offerings which you vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God and you and your sons and your daughters, your male and female servants, and the Levite who is within your gates, since he has no portion nor inheritance with you. Take heed to yourselves that you do not offer your burnt offerings in every place that you see, but in the place which the Lord chooses. In one of your tribes, there uh, there you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I command you. However, you may slaughter and eat meat within all your gates, Whatever your heart desires, according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which he has given you, the unclean and the clean may eat of it, of the gazelle and the deer alike. Only you shall not eat the blood. You shall pour it on the earth like water. You may not eat within your gates the tithe of your grain, of your new wine, or your oil, of the firstborn of the herd of your flock, or of any of your offerings which you vow, of your freewill offerings, or of the heave offerings of your hand. But you must eat them before the Lord your God in the place which the Lord your God chooses, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, and the Levite who is within your gates. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all in which you put to your hands. Take heed to yourselves that you do not forsake the Levite as long as you live in your land. When the Lord your God enlarges your borders as he has promised you, and you say, let me eat meat because you long to eat meat, you may eat as much meat as your heart desires, which shows me that God has no problem with Brazilian barbecues. That's pretty much right there. If the place where the Lord your God chooses to put his name is too far from you, well, then you may slaughter from the herd and from your flock, which the Lord has given you, and just as I've commanded you. And you may eat within your gates as much as your heart desires, just as the gazelle and the deer are eaten. So you may eat them. The unclean and the clean alike may eat them. Only be sure that you do not eat the blood. For the blood is the life. You You may not eat the life with the meat. You shall not eat it. You shall pour it on the earth like water. You shall not eat it that it may go well with you and your children after you when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. Only the holy things which you have and your vowed offerings you shall take and go to the place which the Lord chooses. And you shall offer your burnt offerings, the meat and the blood and the altar of the Lord your God. And the blood of the sacrifices shall be poured out on the altar of the Lord your God. And you shall eat the meat. Observe and obey all these words which I command you, that it may go well with you and your children after you forever. When you do what is good and right in the sight of the Lord your God. And when the Lord your God cuts off from before you the nations which you go to dispossess, and you displace them and dwell in their land, take heed to yourself that you are not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed from before you. And that you do not inquire after their gods, saying, well, how did these nations serve their gods? 
I also will do likewise. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abomination to the Lord which he hates, they have done to their gods. For they burn even their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it, nor take away from it. You pray with me, please. Lord, here we are. It's the 1st of February, 2015. Preparing to sit at your table. to Have communion together as a family. And here we are, Lord, seeking your face. More than just getting informed, which we certainly could do from this text. More than just understanding better a culture or delving into something historical. You have, for over 3,000 years, allowed this text to remain, that we could be instructed from it, challenged and encouraged from it, that we could see your faithfulness and power and glory in it, that we could be transformed from it. By the power of your Holy Spirit, through the vehicle of your word, renew the spirit of our minds. Let us not be conformed to this world, but transformed. And Lord, may we understand you better, your love more, your calling in our lives better. Lord, may we just be so overtaken and bowled over by the sheer brilliance and magnificence of your love. And God, I pray today that for each of us, we would hear you, that we would know you. Lord, if there be any who have yet to say yes to the gift of your Son on the cross, let this be the day of their salvation. Lord, if there be any who have been just in the bouviac and they just feel the bullet holes on their skin, let today be the day of their healing. For those that are discouraged and feel heavy laden, as if the world's gravity has tripled upon them because of the circumstances that, that beset them, Lord, upon the beautiful, blistery morn of your word, now shine forth a horizon of great hope. Bringing forth the most resilient colors that come when our Lord is Lord of our lives. So now, Lord, minister to us, I pray. May your word burst open and come alive, and may we have so much fun in your word now as we pray. Lord, immerse me in your spirit that I would disappear and come upon me in such a way through your Holy Spirit that you would use me as your tool, Lord, to speak to every one of us individually as well as corporately now. I commit this time to you and just pray you would do a marvelous work that every one of us could say, wow, as you intend. Jesus, in your name. Amen. I would say today as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Don't just assume that there's some expert with a microphone or a guy they call pastor and that's good enough. I've heard enough crazy things from people called pastors with mics. Take that beautiful book and test everything you hear. We are now historically 34, 3500 years ago. We are at a time where the nation of Israel now is standing on one side of the Jordan River. It is a place they were 38, 40 years ago, where the generation prior had refused out of a lack of faith to step in. And now God has brought them back. 
Perhaps some of you know what that's like, where there was a time in your life where a great opportunity beset you. You saw the power of God, and all you had to do was trust Him to do the miraculous. But fear gripped you. You became an expert in the opposition. And as a result, became ignorant to the promises that God had given you. Oh, you may have been able to quote them to others, but your heart was so vacant from the hope that comes from really embracing the promises of God. And you forgot. Or worse yet, we think we're not because we add things as if it was in the Scripture. For instance... The scripture says nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Are you familiar with the text? It's the end of Romans 8. And then he goes to list just about anything you can think of, right? Height, depth, width, breadth. He talks about the past, the present, the future. He talks about angels and demons. He talks about, you know, whether it be sword or famine or nakedness. If you, if you can make it up, if you could find it, if you could, you know, if you could Google it, it's on that list somehow. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And when God says nothing, it means nothing. And for many of us, <coughs> we put something like, except our sin. But that's a thing. And no thing includes anything. And we add that, and what happens is we just took the verse and we completely made it opposite. Because we thought we were smart enough to add something that God didn't put in there. And what happens is we become our own bizarre theologians because we've added these little things for which a lot of the culture can look and go, yeah, 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 huzzah. Because we just, you know, it just seems reasonable. But is there anything reasonable about God's grace? Bringing them to this place again, they have to embrace by faith God's grace. And he's preparing them. This is, if you will, a locker room talk before the entry into this victory. And when God does, he lays out law that goes all the way back to Leviticus, a book which, by the way, many people do not like to read. I personally love to read it because it's one of my, for what it's worth, it's one of my 66 favorite books of the scripture. And, uh, and I just, you know, if, if God didn't think it was important, I think God would have edited it out. But let me kind of throw this at you. And again, don't just believe me, but consider this. When God lays laws and judgments and statutes before you, I like to use the acronym HOLY. There is for, a, if you will, the recipe of at least four different things. The H stands for health. There are some laws that God gives simply for your health. Hey, back in a day, by the way, when people did not properly cook their meat... God didn't want you swelling up like a gas balloon, so the idea of eating pork's a bad idea. I get it. As a matter of fact, on that list of things that are off the menu for God is bat, which, by the way, some of you are familiar with the fact that eating bat has created quite a stir over the last, well, I don't know, eight, nine months, because there's a small group of kids eating bat in Africa, and what happened as a result of that? Ebola. Hmm, health. Some of you are like, I didn't know that. Search it on your own. Don't just believe me. I don't know about you, but I think bat. Mm, never looked and went, wow, I'm just drooling at the thought of bat. But 
The second is obedience. The O of holy is obedience. And the idea is simple, that sometimes God just wants to give us things to give us the opportunity to simply obey him. Now, it will play out in other ways as well, but the, the world needs to see that we actually trust God. And one of the ways we display it is by not having to figure it out. Hey, there are times where I've had to tell my children, don't do this. And it's not like I have time to give them a 10 point sermon on why it is they shouldn't do that. Running out into the street, sometimes no is all you're going to get out. Like, I need you to trust me. I know what I'm doing here. The L of holy is to leave where I came from. Israel has spent 430 years in Egypt, and that is an awful lot of time to be indoctrinated with a very wonky, wrong view of who God is. And God wants us to leave the world we came from. And the why is to yearn only for him in the new place. And what God wants to do with every one of us is pull us out of the world we once knew because he's not here to redecorate our life. He's here to reinvent it. And here we are sort of sitting at the locker room on the side of the river, awaiting to get on the other side. And he says, now let me make this clear. In a word, chapter 12 is, you are bringing a new God into that territory, a God they're not familiar with, and you need to recognize that new God comes with a whole new way to worship him. And as a result of that, Everything is going to look different. Jesus speaks about this in Matthew 9. Many of you are familiar with him when he talks about you don't put an unshrunk piece of cloth to patch up a shrunk pair of jeans. Because what will happen is it will shrink and pull off and make the tear worse. He says you don't put new wine in an old wineskin because an old wineskin is inflexible and new wine will expand. It will burst and you'll lose both. As a result of that, God knows that the most dangerous thing for the nation Israel, and it's the one thing that they should know just from the wilderness alone, is adultery to him. Which tells you the kind of perspective God has in regards to you and him. He doesn't say that what you're doing is you're sort of sneaking out and looking for another job, as if God were a CEO. He's not just saying, oh, we're no longer BFFs because you found somebody else and you defriended me. That's not what God's saying here. The only person you can commit adultery with is someone that you have engaged in a perfect commitment of marriage. So when God starts talking about it from a perspective of adultery, understand at least the way that God sees this relationship is one of romance, one of intimacy, and one of commitment. Not of one of sort of a distant thing where God sort of turns on ESPN and watches us all work this thing out for entertainment. This is considerably different than every other God in the way that they're worshipped. And as a result of that, the most dangerous thing that could happen is for them not to be, it's, the issue is not being not perfect. The issue is not being faithful to the one who loves you, who created you to be with him. And we look at scriptures, and there's so many times where you'll see people, and they're just a yutz. I mean, they are so darn human. And God doesn't seem like he grabs the axe at him. And there are other people, on the other hand, but it seems like God brings the gavel down hard. Might I suggest the issue is not our perfection, but really our pursuit. Who is it? So as a result of that, nothing could be more important to God here than removing any and every opportunity for you to commit adultery. Which means, in this case, it's altars, pillars, wooden and carved images, and even the names themselves. And God says, instead, I'm going, to pray, I'm going to create one place for sacrifice. 
It will be a place, clearly according to this, that will actually be a place of rejoicing. He says it three different times, by the way, in this text. We'll see in verses 7, 12, and 18. God says that he will lay out an absolute right versus everybody doing what they feel is right. He'll tell us in here that it will be, and all of these things will be very different from where they're going and where they came from. You can eat meat anywhere, but don't call it a sacrifice unless you bring it to God's house. And whatever the case is, you don't drink blood and you're like, well, why would we do that? Well, understand that'll be part of the development of this. Is that in the perspective of worshipers of foreign gods, the whole idea of, of offering any meat was, was for the purpose of killing their life to get their power. You can still see this, by the way, in India and in China today. Some of the things you eat, you eat for the purpose of trying to gain their power is the perspective that is offered. And there are some things that I'm not too sure why you'd want to eat mealworms or a giant centipede. I don't know, maybe you're like, you feel like you don't have enough hands or something, but I mean, you know, I, I don't get it, but that's just, that's just me. And understand God's like, I don't want you to think that this, the power is in the blood of the animal. The power is not in your sacrifice. The power is in the one you are seeking in that sacrifice. That's the point. He'll say in this, assume personal care for the priests. But let me put it in its simplest sense as we kind of get into this. And please hear me in this. How many of you here would say that you have some form of Mediterranean influence? Like you're from around the Mediterranean. I'm, I'm looking, I'm seeing some kind of Mediterranean. No. See, like, what's that? That's like a guilty conscience. This is actually, this is a good moment to say that, right? Mediterranean, right? Mediterranean, bring it all. Woof, woof, woof. Mediterranean, Mediterranean. Yeah. Woof. Okay. In the Mediterranean communities, there is this concept, and, and I was actually sitting trying to share the Lord with this girl today from Italy, of all places, of course. And, uh, yeah, so you're off the hook for this one. I'm going to look this way. And at one of these particular coffee places that I would go before I have my lunch or my breakfast with the boys. And when I, 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 I'm trying to break in when I ask, let me ask you something, because I'm reading this text and she's asking what I'm reading, and I'm, I'm reading to her portions of this text. So let me ask you something. Culturally, when you invite somebody to your house, is it cultural to bring a gift? She's like, yeah, yeah, it is. And I said, why? She says, because if you bring a gift, it honors the one who invited you. And it says that I'm thankful you were willing to invite me to your house. It is a way of saying I really appreciate the offer. See, this particular gal was going to, I could tell already, you know, those moments where you're talking to someone, you can see them kind of loading their guns, you know, sort of metaphorically. Oh, sacrificing animals and so forth. And I'm like, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. Do you get it? The idea of this is that look at the difference. The difference is God's like, I'm going to set up my house and I want to invite you over. And when I want to invite you over, I want you to recognize how cool it is that I'm inviting you over. This whole sacrifice is the idea of bringing a gift in respect of the host offering that invitation versus showing up unannounced and be like, hi, by the way, got any bread? This is a case where it's like, I am bringing this gift. The bringing of the gift says, I recognize you invited me. And because I show you that, what I'm saying is, I recognize you want me here. You invited me to this. So I'm going to bring this to say, hey, I'm just really thankful you invited me. Well, with that in mind, please get this. 
This whole chapter is about the fact this is what the religion looks like everywhere else. And this is what religion looks like from a perspective of God. From everywhere else, clearly on this, what he'll talk about, and we'll develop it a little bit more succinctly. But, but, but in this, understand, in the simplest sense, everything else is you do these performances and these acts at the sacrifice of yourself and others, at the expense of yourself and others, to keep their God away. So you'll do it any way you can. Every high hill, every green tree. Did you notice, by the way, in the first two verses, how everything's plural? It's images and pillars. It's carved images and it's wooden images. It's all plural. It's every green place. That's plural. It's every green tree, you know, every high, every high hill, every green place. And the idea of it's simple. And he says, look at, I know what you're doing and eh, whatever you want to make up and call it cool because I'm going to actually establish a very clear way of doing things. But it starts with this. You are not doing sacrifices to keep me away. Why would I invite you to my house to have you keep me away? And all of a sudden I realized the difference between Christianity and everything else is whether we worship God to keep him away because he's wrathful and angry with a beard and a stick, or whether he's somebody that we love and as a result of that our sacrifice is saying, I'm gladly give this stuff up because you do better with it than I would. And the difference is radical. I don't even worship God to draw him close. Understand, worship should not be for results. Worship should be out of, not to. And the moment you're doing something to try to get God to respond, you kind of flip back to this other religion. Because everything else is, if I do this and I do this, here will be his response. He'll stay away. He'll give me a better life. Things will be good. He won't bat me on the head like I could be. And that becomes so much of it. And I watch this. As some of you have heard, you know, in India, Shope in Calcutta, and I watched this man, he's in his 90s, roll down this hill. He's stripped all of his clothes off of him. He's put things in the way, like pieces of bone and glass. And I'm going, what in the world is he doing? And the guy that's with me is like, oh, brother, oh, brother, Kali, from which Calcutta is named, is a god of discord, of vengeance. And he's doing this to keep him away. And as we would go, every corner there was another altar. And I'd ask, well, who's this guy? Or who's this gal? Sometimes it's hard to tell. I'm like, so who's this one? It's almost like those babies, you know, where you're like, they're so cute. You're like, cute baby. Because you don't want to say boy or girl, right? I mean, you ever see those, those hats they give that say boy on them? I'm like, I think you should give one to every boy. Anyways, but, but you know, it's like, it's like, who's this thing? And they're like, oh, it's this God. Well, what are they the God of? The God of destroying crops. Oh. Okay, what about this one? This is the God of miscarriages. What's this God? Well, this is the God that actually, you know, gives you poison when you drink things. I'm like, are there any gods that are just like the warm, fuzzy, like Barney? You know, I love you. You love me. Is there any of those? They're like, not that I know of. I'm like, there are 300 million gods. You think one of them would be nice? And I'm not trying to be mean. The point is simple. In every other case, you instigate the relationship, you pursue the relationship, and maybe they'll respond accordingly. And at the, at the best of it, is your, the response is that you get less of them. I mean, talk to these people and say, no, what do you get when you're there? Rivers flowing with wine, women chained to couches, but where is the God? Where is he at? Where's the fellowship there? It's like, okay, go ahead. You get enlightenment. 
You've figured out things. But where's the relationship? And then I have a God who created me for him. Because it says, by him and for him I was made. And he's been calling out to me ever since. He's like, worship services should look nothing like that. Because if it looks like that, they're going to get the wrong idea of who I am. And I get that. So this whole chapter is like, I know where you came from, and I know where you're going. And neither of those are where you're going to draw your cues from. So let me play this out for a moment, the way that kind of looks. Because if we were going to be careful about this, the church is going to need to get scoured. What does success look like from a Christian perspective? You stand before God today. And you want to be able to be confident to say, I've been successful. What does that look like? What is the word he's been saying for the last, since the beginning of the book of Deuteronomy, which he's sort of, if you will, putting cliff notes on the entire book so far? Obey. If you keep my commandments and obey my word. Isn't that what he's been saying over and over and over? And we're like, yeah, 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 I've heard it again. I've heard it again. We're like teenagers. Understand, that's the only thing he holds us accountable to is that obedience. Because the results are his anyways. And there's the danger. So imagine we as a church, if what we were saying is what we sought to be was surrendered to the one who made us to obey him so that he would do beautiful and glorious things to us. Could you imagine the difference? I'm not asking, well, so how many people have you shared Jesus with today, Allie? Or, you know, let me ask you, how long has it been? Surely, have you really taken in this many? And have you done this? Or done that? Here's the problem. I'm going to kind of create my own confines. But that may not be the giftings that God's given Shirley or Juan or David or Allie. But the thing is, is that they may be some of the things. But when the body is faithful to just obey the Lord, the whole body functions. Imagine looking at my eye and saying, so how much have you listened to today? But that's the danger. And I know this, if we could fall in love with God, all of this is going to work its way out. Because he's fallen in love with us. So please understand in this, from a God's perspective, people that are surrendered to him, God does amazing, amazing things. And we get to enjoy the ride. But from a worldly perspective, this isn't a ministry, this is a business. So what does that look like? From a worldly perspective, this is what a business looks like. The biggest clientele the largest buildings, the greatest impact in regards to it being known by its society around it. If you were known as the thing, you've clearly been a success. In America, we don't drink flavored drink. We drink Kool-Aid. If our nose is running, we don't grab a tissue. We grab a Kleenex. You know why? Because the, the, the brand has so now become synonymous with the product, it sort of conquered it. Imagine that as a church. What we really need to do is grow the church. Not grow the Christians, but grow the church. We need more people, so that when people think church in London, we are the church. When people think worship, this is what this church looks like. Or they think the word, this is what they look at. And it's like we become synonymous with part of our product. But the problem is then what happens is you get used by me instead of by God. Because the purpose then is somehow we need to make, we need to make Calvary the thing. Can I just say, shut up. That is so not, I don't care. 
I want you to fall in love with Jesus. If Jesus isn't the thing, then what product do we have? And that's the whole point of it. So what happens? We have church growth seminars, and we can know how to send out our 8x10 glossies so that everyone can see, check out our church. We're multicultural, and we're multiracial, and we're multigenerational. Which, by the way, we are. And we want to make sure that we do our demographic surveys so that we make sure that people see and go, oh, wait a minute, that's the hot thing. I need to go there. Because there's 75, you know, there's like 750 kebab places in this place. How, which one is the kebab place? The one with all the people standing outside. So let's make that happen. Well, we need the right building. We need the right. And those things aren't bad enough themselves, but they're just not success. And all of a sudden what happens is we have this hierarchy and there's this great divide and there's the congregants that think, I just can't do anything because I'm not an expert. I don't have the letters before or after my name. I'll give you a few if you want, QRST or whatever. I'll make some up. But where's the excitement to say, Lord, I'm just yours. Use me. I, who cares what happens? That's your job. I just want the joy of actually riding this ride with you. So understand as we get into this text, and we will develop it a little bit. Understand in this text what God's saying is, Stop looking at the world for your cues. We need to start tearing this stuff down. I don't want you to even refer to it. How do we know that the church is successful? Well, why don't you ask the one who's actually judging? He wrote a book. He's got a whole rule book here. And the beautiful thing is it's more than just a rule book. It's an autobiographical love story. And you were the recipient of that love. So he says, these are the statutes and judgments. Verse 1. Statutes is the word chok, for what it's worth. The word judgments is the word mishpat. And those are the words that mean, in essence, enactment, appointments, and verdicts. In other words, there are certain things where he talks about as a commandment, where God says, this is a decree, you should do this. And other places where God's placed a judgment, here's his judgment. What is he placing the judgment on? All other religion. For which, by the way, we can say the church has been very guilty of siphoning from so many other things that we kind of look like a salad bar ourselves. Pick a little of this and that. Hey, look at how they do that. But what happens is we become so familiar with all of that, we don't even know what God wants. We've memorized so many you know, verses from movies, we don't even have space, ram space in our head for Scripture. Let that not be said here. Notice verse 2, he says, you shall utterly destroy. You get the idea God's not messing around here? He doesn't want you just to kind of destroy it. He doesn't want you just to muck it up. He doesn't want you to make it so that a little bit of super glue is going to fix this. Utterly destroy means that you're not going to be able to get back to it. And then he kind of lifts it in five different things. Verse 3 and 4. Destroy the altars. Break down their sacred pillars. Burn their wooden images with fire. An effective way to burn things, fire. Cut down their carved images of their gods and destroy their names from that place. And God tells us why, because I don't want you worshiping me that way. The last thing that God wants is you to go to his house and do something to keep him away. That just seems crazy. And that's why everybody else does everything under every green tree, on every high hill. They do it that way because they don't have any sense of relationship, just fear. And I read this and I go, okay, altars, what does that look like? That's a place where you sacrifice. That's a place where you're supposed to encounter God. But the way they do that is through, through all of their good works. Break their sacred pillars. 
The sacred pillars was the place where people got together and had sex. They did whatever they felt was right. As a matter of fact, many of these pillars were even shaped like things that encouraged it. The Asherah poles for the Asherah poles you see in Scripture often shaped like something we couldn't even show here. and wouldn't want to. The, woman, the wooden images were, if you will, much like what we see in much of the countries around the Mediterranean, where it's usually the carved image of an intermediary. Do you remember when Paul and Barnabas spoke and they thought he was Zeus and Hermes? There was sort of the guy with power and then the guy that was the spokesperson. And you went through the spokesperson so that you could talk to the guy with power. God is so not into that. Put it in the perspective again of God putting this in a relationship. Juan is in love with Ati. He pursues Ati. He knows that because Ati has been a human being and she's probably had a thousand suitors prior to Ati, prior to Juan, as a result of that, Juan has to prove his sincerity. He has to prove his, his desire is more than sort of a temporary, fiery Spanish passion. As a result of that, he's going to have to do that, and, it's, and it can't be something quick. There's no heroic act that can be done in three seconds to prove to Ati that he's going to be faithful for the rest of his life in pursuit of her. It's going to take time. It's going to take faithfulness. And it's going to take trustworthiness. Are you all following me? All right, you're no one sleeping, right? Just checking. Now, ultimately, what's going to happen in this is he's going to pursue her for the intent All of that sacrifice, and he'll do things he's never done before, as a man does when he's in love. He'll pull out more than just his hands and his heart. He'll pull out his wallet. And for a man, sometimes that's an amazing thing. You know he's serious at that point. He'll he'll stop hanging out with his boys because he wants to hang out with his girl. And he'll trade in the lot of them for the one. Every conversation has infected his mouth now with her. It doesn't matter what you're talking about. Look at those clouds. They're so high up there. And he's like, oh, it reminds me of Ati. So far above all other women. And everything starts to sound like a Shakespearean sonnet. Or Disney. It all depends on where you come from. And then imagine after, let's say, three hot years of pursuit, where he sought to be faithful, prove himself faithful, prove himself as a man of standard, to prove that he really means what he says, he finally drops the knee and she finally says, Yes. And he's like, oh, perfect. Puts the ring on her hand, stands at the altar, and then says, well, Ati, I'm really awesome. And though I pursued you to be my wife, you're going to have to talk to my mother from this point on. Now, there are relationships I've seen that have kind of worked out that way. They've never worked out well. But I've seen those. Do you want to talk to me? Do you have to talk to my mother? Wouldn't Ozzy start to question his sincerity? (laughs) Or, oh, you know what? I have some, like, older brothers, and you need to talk through them. I start to go, well, Ozzy would have a real reason to question sincerity. So why is it that we can do that with the Lord? And say, you know what? I mean, I know you died to be with me. I know this whole thing is supposed to be a husband to a bride, and I'm supposed to be part of that bride. But from this point on, now that I've really proven my love, died and resurrected, let's just say from this point on, you need to talk through my mom. Really? 
Or worse yet, you need to talk through some dead saints. Some guys that were really nice. There's some bones. You can go to the church and you can kneel before these bones that are petrified at this point. And just really, like, like he's going to give the message. He's dead. It's obvious. I'm looking at him. He's dead. And that's where we go with this. He's like, I don't want that. You know what that looks like? That looks like the rest of the world. How about the times when you're like, you know what? I don't feel like I could come to God right now because I've really blown it. I've done something so stupid. I feel so filthy. I feel so rotten. Surely God would not want me. Sure, if God was actually wanting you because of your merit. But that's the rest of the religions. But I haven't given enough, prayed enough, done enough, tithed enough, walked enough or whatever, shared enough. You know, the crazy part is you can't put out a fire with a hose. You can use one, but a hose by itself is not going to help you. No matter how fast you spin it, you won't blow out the fire. You need to attach it to something, preferably water. And might I say in the same way, the Lord is not asking you to put out fire. He's asking you to stay clinging to him and let him do the work. But to feel like, oh, I don't know if I could go to God right now because I haven't put out enough fires. Do you see how crazy that gets? Because I want you taking that stuff down. Those wooden images, those carved images where people now think about how the rest of the world. And I start thinking, now that I've accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, his resurrection afterwards, as I've accepted that, I'm like, what were my altars before? What were those places I'd lay down and sacrifice? What were those things that I would set up that would gather other people that I could lead them into sin? What were those wooden images where I would actually say, well, here's some things we really need to adulate because somehow they're the go-between. Or carved images. Those things now, which, by the way, are, are you know, they're, they're like the, the, the tangible things that I need to feel safe, to feel like I have direction, that I have clarity. In the simplest sense, what are the priorities and the things that I've held dear that just don't play as a Christian now? It's not about me being known or being famous or being anything. It's about making Christ known. And can I say, that's not just the rest of the world of Christendom. That's the church. Because the Lord has never called us to be superstars. He's called us to be servants. He says, you want to be great later? Be least now. You want to be least later? Try to be great now. Make that choice. Here's the problem. You're playing Monopoly right now. Real life happens when you die. Do you really want to be rich now but have money you can't spend, so to speak? Do you want to be the champion of risk now but then have your life fail? Eternity stands before us on the other side of this. And this is the one shot we've got to live for him. Hey, least now pays off well later. But you won't find that elsewhere. And you won't find that, by the way, even in much of the church. Because the idea still is, who's the greatest teacher? Who's the coolest pastor? Who's got the greatest building? Who's got the hottest worship team? Can I just say this? Who's got the most awesome God? We do. And we're not, we're not, we don't have that market cornered, by the way. My prayer is every church that claims Jesus Christ would be able to say that. And that's what the focus would be. Let everything else fall in the line. So listen. What are those things in your life? Those altars, those pillars, the wooden images, the carved images. What names do you still hold on to that you really shouldn't anymore? Those names that were so important at one point in your life, but to be honest, they 
They just don't play in the house of God. God says, you're not going to worship me that way. Verse 4. But I want you to seek the place I'm going to put my name. And what God really does want is a public assembly. Remember in Exodus 23, 17, he'll tell us that at least three times a year, I want all the able-bodied men to come to my house for a barbecue. God knows what he's talking about. It tells us in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, that we're not to forsake the assembling of believers together. As some, by the way, I've already done. But we exhort one another, and all the much more as we see the day approaching. It should be a place dedicated to prayer. Isaiah made that clear in Isaiah 56, 7. That's easy to remember. 5, 6, 7. Jesus, of course, would pull that out in Luke 19, 46, when he says, my house is supposed to be, my father's house is supposed to be a house of prayer. Remember what prayer is. It is having a conversation with God. And I understand why then in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, it tells us where to pray without ceasing. God's like, I don't want us ever to be not on a talking basis. It's to be a place of worship, thanksgiving, and rejoicing. Three different times again, 7, 12, and 18, we'll see it as rejoicing here. But the thing that pulls us all together will be when we get to John 4. Because in John 4, Jesus is speaking to a woman who, by the way, is a Samaritan. She's learned how to do all of the practices, but for the wrong reasons. When the northern tribes, when the kingdom had divided on this side of about 1000 B.C. in the 900s B.C., the northern kingdoms, ten of them, tribes of the twelve, called themselves Israel. And as they called themselves Israel, they would find themselves never ruled by a decent king. Nineteen of them, every one of them, just nasty in rank. And ultimately, 721, 722 B.C., they will be taken captive by the Assyrians. The Assyrians took most of the Israelis out of the, of the land and relocated people from other parts of conquered territory into that property. As they did, the people were being mauled to death by wild animals. And just like most people view gods as territorial, the people from the other places looked and said, the God of this area, is, he's, he's having a bad day. He's not real pleased with us. We need to find out what practices they do here to keep them away. Does that sound familiar? And so they learned the practices. And they learned the practices in such a way that it seemed to work. But the Samaritans were more than just mixed race, which God didn't have the big issue with. The issue was that they were mixed religion, and there's where the problem is. But let me ask you, what about you? Any of you raised in a Christian home? Well, you learned the standards. There's nothing wrong with that. My prayer is that would be a good thing. But if you grabbed a hold of it with the idea that if you do them right, God won't beat you. But I hate to think my kids would think that of me. Like the only reason they do good is so that I don't beat them. What kind of relationship is that? No, clearly you do stupid things. You'll get some stupid results. That should, you know, you run in front of a car. Don't blame the car. I don't believe it. God did that. And you'll see people doing that. But in the end of it all, if we do all this thing for the same reason. So when Jesus meets the woman at the well in John 4, at a place called Sichar, by the way, the place where Jacob himself had been. And we know that there's all kinds of animosity between the Jews who consider themselves purebred and, of course, the Samaritans who they considered half-breed in every way. So, and no 
man starts a conversation in public with a woman. The rabbis, the only person they were allowed to speak with in public that was a woman was their mother. You know, some of those Mediterranean cultures, you understand. You don't diss mom. So when he starts a conversation, she's a little shocked. My goodness, what are you doing talking to me? But it was worse than just a man talking to a woman. It was that it was a man talking to a woman, and it was a man that clearly was of rabbinical nature. His own dress would would show that. He was clearly Jewish, and she was clearly not. And she was at the well, which, by the way, the well in those days was the e-harmony of the day. Girl sat at the well, but this wasn't her just looking for a mate. She had already had a few, and she's living with a guy now. She's in a rough spot. She's going to get water at noon, not the time where you want to get water if you've ever been in a place where it gets warm during the middle of the day. Here at this moment, we can only imagine. And as the conversation ensues, he starts to systematically pull out where the real need is. And God does this. She's thirsty and she's getting water. But her soul is thirsty and she doesn't even know it. Well, or she does but doesn't know it the way he's going to meet her. Can I have a drink? It says, give me a drink. But understand, in Aramaic and in Hebrew, the difference between a question and a statement is just the inflection. Give me a drink? She's like, what are you, a Jew, doing asking me for a drink? Starts out as a Jew. This woman, if you knew who this guy is that's talking to you right now, you'd have asked him for a drink and he would have given you living water. Now, living water is not fancy. There's two kinds of water, still water and living. Living just means it's running, and you certainly want to drink that versus nasty pond water. She says, I'd like that. Because, yeah, the water that I'd give you, you'll never thirst again. It'll instead turn you into a fountain. Where you feel like a desert, you'll turn into a fountain. She's like, oh, that's what I want. I want a permanent cure. Jesus goes, well, then let's deal with the real problem. The real problem? Go get your husband. And at that point, God's called you to the carpet. You have an opportunity to lie. You could try to save face, and I'm sure it would be tempting. But she gets clean with him. And you're right. I don't have a husband right now. And Jesus is like, well said. Thank you for your honesty. Truth be told, you're right. You don't have a husband. You've had five. The guy you're living with now, he's not your husband. And at that point, it's interesting because she goes, whoa. Now, imagine if God sort of started pulling out your laundry, you'd get a little nervous. She's like, sir, now it went from a Jew to sir. Sir is now a term of respect. I see you're a prophet. Prophet. She goes, you know, there's been this thing on my mind. And I love the fact that God knew that this woman had a hunger and a thirst that was actually craving in her soul. She goes, here's the problem. You Jews tell us that the only place to worship is in Jerusalem. But we're not even welcome there. I mean, it's a church we wouldn't go. It would be like a white-only church. And then some would say, you have to go here to be saved. And some of you would be like, I'm not even welcome there. Which, by the way, is completely not the truth here. You know that. Uh, okay, so, uh, Lord, take care of that. Thank you. All right, so, now, so she goes, like, you know, okay, here's the problem. I'm not even allowed there, and it's like the only place where you say I can go. And he says, woman, 
which understand woman isn't like where I came from. It's like woman, you know, it's like woman's a term of respect. Today we might say lady, but we don't really have those terms anymore. But there are terms. Dame, we might say, for instance. Now, we wouldn't just say that to someone, but obviously it could be granted to a person. So he's actually establishing honor on a gal that he's already said. He's already said that she's in this situation with this man. And he's starting to bestow honor on her. And she's like, look, you know, so what's the deal? And he says, listen, ma'am, lady, the issue is not going to be the place. What God's really looking for is someone who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And we love that text because somehow we just, as long as we can tackle it on something, I'm worshiping in spirit and in truth. And we'll even add, I'm worshiping in the spirit, which isn't what it says. The spirit, for some, is the license to do whatever they want, ironically, against often the truth. But for people who did the practices, they did the practices to keep God away. They were busy trying to do the right thing but they didn't do it for the right heart. To worship in spirit is the God says, I want your your heart. I want this part of you. Because it's not real worship if you just show up and do something. I want this part of you. The part that means something when you offer. Not singing or not laying something down and thinking it was so awesome. But listen, I want this part of you because why would one just want Ati to do his laundry? Although, I'll pray for, pray for one. A couple studies tomorrow. There's so much more to this. And God, in his, as a perfect gentleman, has been fishing that out. And understand the whole purpose of that is God is going all the way back here in Deuteronomy to pull that out. He's like, the reason I'm putting a specific place is I want you to realize it's my house. But the purpose isn't because we're going to have just one place. It's because I don't want you making up any of this. The whole purpose of this is I'm inviting you to my place so that I can love on you. But for that to happen, I want you to realize this is an invitation. You're not showing up unannounced. I'm inviting you. And you are welcome to come anytime you want. It is an open invitation. Three times a year I'm demanding it because I don't want you to go, I'll get around to it and not get around to it. Put it in your diary now. Before years go by and you're like, man, we haven't gone to God's house for quite a while. It's like set it up before you set up everything else. And so when God says this, and, let's, and, and it'll pick up quite quickly now, it needs to. But please hear me in this. It's like, look at all of the things that you're going to say are sacrifices. The burnt offerings, the sacrifice, the tithes, which again just means tenth. The heave offerings, the vowed offerings, free will offerings, those things that are expected and those things you would do just because you love me. Don't just do those anywhere and say it's cool. I want it in my house. I want it in my name. And I want you to eat it there and notice in verse 7 you'll rejoice. You're not going to do it like you are right now. Everyone just making it up as they go along. Verse 8. Which, by the way, let me just sort of throw this out as a thought. In Judges 17, verse 6, and in Judges 21, verse 25, twice God says the same thing. That they did what was right in their own eyes. And this is why he said, because there was no king in Israel. Interesting, when the people finally asked for a king... Samuel, who at that time was ruling and about to try to bequeath it to his children, who were punks, mind you, gets all bent over it. And God says, stop freaking out. It isn't that they've denied you. They've denied me that I wouldn't rule over them. That's the problem. That's 1 Samuel 8, verse 7. That's the problem. It's like, look it, I've been the king, but if they won't let me be king, well, then they'll just make it up as they go along. And here's the difference, beloved, as we see how this hinges on our rest. Is that God... 
must be more than just your Savior. He's got to be your Lord. Nowhere in Scripture does it say, well, because you didn't confess me as Savior, this isn't going to work out. But it does say that about Lord. If we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, but we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. That's the point. And he has a right. And if you want to be one of those kind of people, it's like, I just feel like Jesus is a get out of hell free card. Well, then you put yourself in a very dangerous and precarious position where in the end of it all, you'll make up the rest and think it's okay. Oh, Jesus is like my bellhop. He's going to take care of me. Well, that's actually very dangerous. Verse 9 says, well, you've not come to rest in the inheritance yet. He'll give you that rest. Verse 10, he gives you that rest. And that points us right to Hebrews 4. Some will say, well, do you keep the Sabbath? It's amazing you can ask Christians, when is the Sabbath? I'll say Sunday. Well, it's interesting. Sabbath actually is Saturday. But please understand the point of it. The point was God created everything in six days. And then he's like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take the day off tomorrow. He makes man and then takes the day off. Why do you think that is? Because he wants to be with him. You don't Sabbath from, you Sabbath with. I'm not just resting from things. I'm resting with the Lord. That's the point. So when someone says, do you keep the Sabbath? I'm like, I keep the perfect Sabbath. Hebrews 4 tells us, by the way, since the promise of entering his rest still remains, well, then let us be concerned or fear lest any of you seem to come short of it. Indeed, the gospel was preached to that, to us as well as to them. But the word did not actually properly profit them because it was not mixed with faith. For those who heard it in verse 10 of that same chapter, it says, He who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works, even as God did from his. The moment that I fall into the arms of God, I stop working to win God's love because I already have it. Christ is my Sabbath. So listen, if you're going to say sacrifice, put it in my name and bring it to my house. How's that? Amazing. I've done this for God. God's like, you better do it in my name then. Well, I've clothed the poor and I've done nice things to people. Have you done it in my name or are you doing it in yours? Have you done it in the name of your church? I want people to know my name. Or stop calling it the sacrifice you think it is. For the religious leaders, they'd say, this couch is dedicated to uh, God. But they'd leave it in their house. Jesus is going to nail him on it. He says, you call that Corbin? You're supposed to honor your mother and father. They don't have a bed and you've got five of them and you won't give one because you said it's dedicated to me. How does that work? How could it be dedicated to me so that you could be living more luxuriously while somebody in need doesn't have it? Your own parents, for goodness sakes. So when you come, by the way, I want you to come and rejoice with me. Verse 12. As you do offer whatever you want to do, but listen to this. You can eat meat anywhere you want. But if you call it a sacrifice, bring it to my house and do it in my name. That's the simple of it. The blood issue, you're not looking for power through the animal you're sacrificing. You're praising God who is all-powerful and almighty. I love that. So, you can eat within your gates anything else. I don't care. If you want to have a barbecue, go for it. And by the way, if you want to have a barbecue, invite me. Just kidding. Anyways, but, you know, we're welcome to eat. But let's not call it a sacrifice. Let's call it what it is. A meal. Just rejoice with me. Come and hang out with me. And by the way, what's interesting is when you go to God's house, guess what you get to do there too? You get to eat. The only difference is you're openly declaring you're eating with him. 
That's the point. So when, and this is how it closes, when the Lord enlarges your borders, could you make sure of this as well, verse 19, when he actually brings you in? Please don't forget the people who are serving. Now, that's a very rough statement for me to make right now because obviously I look like I could have a vested interest in that. But it is scriptural. Galatians 6, 6 says, whoever is taught the word should share all good things with him who teaches. And 1 Corinthians 9, verses 9 through 14, where he pulls out the concept that you shouldn't muzzle an ox while it's treading the grain. It says those who preach the gospel should live by it. If there's somebody out there and every time they're out there, they're sharing the gospel. I don't want them doing anything else if they can get out there and share the gospel. Because we need people like that out there. It tells us in 1 Timothy 5, verse 17, let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. And the scripture says, and he quotes again then, you shall not muzzle the ox while it treads the grain. And the idea is simple. In every other thing, because we're so busy trying to keep God happy, it's selfish. In this situation, we surrender to his love so we can stop freaking out about ourselves. Because he's our king. We will never rest until we rest in our king. So, whatever you want to eat, eat it. Just remember this. When we talk about sacrifice, let's make it for what it really is. That it would, verse 25, go well with you and your children forever. That's what I would love. And it closes with this, by the way. God's like, it's more than just, I don't want you running off and doing that stuff. Do you realize how far it goes? These other gods people kill their babies for. Molech was a bronze idol that was, to be honest, shaped an awful lot like Buddha. The difference was it was carved out in the bottom and they would put fire there and it was brass. And as they put fire there, the lap then would turn red hot. And once the, the, they would actually say this was supernatural. It's pretty simple. You take brass, you put a fire underneath it, it turns red. There's nothing supernatural about that. It's actually, just pull out the super. It's just natural. But because the idea of that there were these gods of pleasure, and every god of pleasure was the same price. They would take their babies and they would wait till it was red hot and they would throw their babies on this searing brass. And this was a sacrifice. And God says, I hate it. He doesn't just say he has a problem with it. He hates it. It is so selfish that all we can think about is ourselves. Now, please understand something. I recognize that in a church already at this size, and the places where we've come from. I cannot stand as a man and say, you know what? How dare you've done these things in your past? Because I understand this. We get confronted with these situations and we'll always be tempted to take the easy way out. The way that cost us the least, but may cost others the most. In an honest confession, though not in that arena, I have certainly been very guilty of that in my past. The good news is, it's the past. And the great thing about a God that wants a relationship with me is he is knowing for me to have a right relationship with him. He must cover my past in forgiveness. And he's all willing to do that and has done so. And you will not get that anywhere else. Trying to earn God's favor with that kind of deficit is impossible. But when God loves you and wants you anyways, it's done. Now, that is not to diminuinize the future. It is to be concerned to say, let's not do that again. But it is to let 
God cover your past so you're no longer plagued with it because the enemy would love to show you places you can't change. But you can cover it in the blood of Jesus today. So no matter where you've come from in this room, and though with all the wars that have been fought that have been labeled as a war, more people have died from abortions than in all of those wars combined. And yet, it's the future I'm looking at. And for a God who is sitting with a group of people at the river and saying, you can dwell in your past right now, but what good is that going to get you? I've never left you. I've never forsaken you. And I'm calling you now to cross the river with me. And I want you to worship me the way I call you to. I want a relationship with you. I'm not calling you over so that you can just try to do things for me. I want to be with you. And I'm going over and I want you coming with me. And leave all of that other stuff in the desert you came from. Let it be the grave it was. So that you can move forward with me now in the newness of life. And that is an offer unique. And you say, but there should be some punishment for those things that were done wrong. And I'd say, yes. And that's why my God, so knowing, allowed one provision. If somebody who without sin, without those crimes, was willing to step in in your stead, God would, would be willing to accept it. But God, knowing the only person that could be without sin is himself, clothes himself in flesh. You understand, that's why the cross is so imperative. What it does is punish your sin. So you don't have to take the punishment. And there is nobody else on the planet that has ever lived that number one qualifies and two volunteered. Only Jesus. He is not one of. He is the. That's just that simple. The Savior. The Lord. The payment. Because he stood in my stead and took my punishment and yours too. How do I know it was enough? He rose from the dead. Just like God promised. Now, here's my question as we pray. Have you accepted that gift? Here is the Lord whipping out the debit card of his payment on the cross. And you can choose to hand him the bill of your life or not. You can pay for it yourself, but why would you? When it's already been paid for, it's already offered. Now, I don't know what you thought Christianity is before you walked in this building, but I'm here to represent Jesus, and he wants you so bad he would rather die than live without you. And he's proven it there. And the only thing left is to say yes. But if you're saying yes, you're letting him pay for you. And you're letting him lead you and love you and cover you in that grace. If you have said yes to Jesus, can we leave our past in the wilderness we came from and follow him across the river? Pray with me, would you please? Lord, I thank you so much as we prepare for communion here. I want to thank you so much for the blessing of what you've done in this time. I thank you for this beautiful chapter. I thank you, Lord, for the great grace that you've shown us. And grace is unique to you. That's clear. It's more than just being kind. It's being kind to the utterly undeserving, of which I easily qualify. And Father, I want to thank you that you loved me so much. That though I properly deserve the punishment Jesus himself suffered, you still sent him. Jesus, thank you for willingly volunteering. And in that, dying on the cross, that all of the heinous, nasty, filthy crimes of my heart could be properly punished. And there as he died at the cross, my bill was paid. 
And just like you promised, that's half the story. Three days later, you rose again, Jesus. To prove that in laying down my life, even right now, to say yes to you, there is a greater life to be gained on the other side. So, Lord, let who I have been die, that who you would want to reinvent would arise. And I pray right now, Lord, for every person in this room and within the sound of this voice. Oh, God, that today we would say yes. Yes to you. And while heads are bowed and eyes are closed, listen. Are you sure that you've said yes to this gift? I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to call you forward. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm just not going to do that. What I'm going to do, though, is invite you to say yes. I'm going to pray a prayer, and I ask you to listen. And in listening to this prayer, I ask at the end, if you agree, I ask for you to say a confident and resounding amen. And the reason is I want you to hear what it is that I'm praying. But in that, if you agree, saying amen is what you're really saying is, I agree. Let that prayer be my prayer. Let those words be my words. And here's the prayer. God, I come to you imperfect, filthy, faulty, broken. I'd love to tell you that all my actions have always been done for the right reasons and they've only been good, but that would be a lie. If I'm going to be honest with you, I've been filth in my own heart and mind. And I need you to forgive me. If you really want this relationship with me and you want to cleanse me completely to do so, then I want to say yes. Now, I may not understand everything, but I know this much. If you want to pay that bill, be my guest. But I also recognize this is an act of love, not obligation. And what you really want is me. And as much as I know, as much as I'm able, I say yes and I give you me. And I ask for you to make me everything you want to make me. First and foremost, I know what you want to make me and that's yours. So cleanse me, make me new, set me free. I do believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins so that they could be fully paid. And that horrible torture clearly proved it was enough. And just like you promised in Scripture, three days later he rose again and offers me a new life. So I lay this one down at the cross and receive the new one where I belong to you. As my Lord and Savior, I declare you, Jesus, both so. Here I am, I'm yours. I belong to you. Jesus, in your name. If you agree with that prayer, I ask you to say, Amen.